Welcome to Narratives and Nightcaps, the book club cast where we dive into the details of a novel, pair it with a fitting nightcap, and leave a little review when all is said and done. I'm Bree. And I'm Megan. And we're talking about a new narrative today. We're covering, I'm trying to get my book, A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins. Ooh, we have different covers. We do. Interesting. Mine's a hardcover. Oh, mine's not. Maybe that's the difference. <laughs> it is very beautiful, though. Yeah, I love it. So on top of it being a new narrative, we also have a new format that we're trying out for this book and maybe other books in the future. We'll kind of see how things are going. So rather than dividing the book up into three episodes, we're going to talk about the whole book today and we're going to cover the whole thing. We're still going to spoil it. So if you haven't read it and you like don't want to know what happens, then, you know, maybe you want to wait till after you read it. But we're going to walk through the whole book. We're still going to give some background info because that's always fun. And we have a fun setting here, too. But this is going to allow us to really focus a lot more on some of the exciting interviews that we've been able to have with authors and other people in in the industry, as well as talk more about things that are happening in the news that are related to books or writing and other exciting things. So we hope you like the new format. And if you knew or if you don't, let us know. We'll be really curious to see how it goes. I think the biggest thing out of this change is going to be the feedback. So I'm excited for the new format. I think that it's going to be a a huge editing relief for our (laughs) in-house editor here. But I also think that it gives us a chance to also cover more than one book a month, which is kind of cool. Because right now we're in that, you know, three weeks doing one book. So this time we'll have two books out in one month, which would be awesome. Yes. So and kind of crazy to look at like all of the books that we've already covered so far this year. But yeah, this is going to allow us to really do, I mean, two a month, essentially. Yeah. So That is super exciting. But of course, we are still pairing a nightcap with every book because that's what we do. And this one is super fitting. This one is perfect. Um, So for this particular novel, I chose, it was my turn to choose, and I chose a hot toddy because we are in, once again, we love our European country. So we are in a London-esque setting where, of course, it's drab, dreary, you know, that mid-fall, early winter kind of time frame. Um, Also, this book is more dark and sinister and mysterious, so I thought a a nice warm hot toddy would go with it. Um, So if you've never had one before, I feel like they tend to be kind of more of like a holiday, fall, seasonal beverage, Um, but it's typically whiskey, water, lemon juice, and honey. And then you can add um, like a lemon wedge or um, a stick of cinnamon if you'd like. And we have it linked for you for um, all of the measurements and any, everything. I kind of just like threw it all together and it's really good. I think you can over sweeten it if you want to, um, if you're not like really into the whiskey flavor. I think I added a dash too much lemon juice, but I'm not mad about it. So, and then I didn't have a stick of cinnamon, but I had 
regular cinnamon. So I, it's all settled at the bottom. So I just wiggled <laughs> it in there. That's what I would have done too if I was drinking it, <clears throat> which I'm not because I'm on a lot, of, a lot of medication right now. So probably not the best time. Yeah. But um, I do think this episode is actually coming out like in September if I'm doing my like mental math and calendar correctly. And so that just makes the drink even better. Like this is kind of the perfect fall book to like cozy up and make a hot toddy and sit with your blanket and start to read this murder mystery. Yes. So we are talking about Paula Hawkins and have some kind of fun information about her first. So from her website, paulahawkinsbooks.com, she was born in Zimbabwe, which, yeah. Oh, yep, is that right. South Africa? It's in Africa. Oh, regular I mean, Africa. Okay. <laughs> it's its own country. Um. So born in Zimbabwe, and then according to Wikipedia, she actually lived there till she was like 17 years old before she moved to London. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, it's not it's not one of those where, you know, someone says, oh, well, I was born there, and then they moved before they were like two. That's I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I knew I had a girl in college that I was somewhat friends with, I guess, and like she was born in South Africa. So, That's cool. um, yeah. I always thought that was really cool. But yeah, she actually lived there till she was 17 and then moved to London. And now she lives in between London and Edinburgh. So sounds like she kind of splits her time in between two very cool places. I'm so jealous. And before she became a known fiction author, she actually worked as a journalist for 15 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a career. Holy cow. Her first two novels sure you've heard of them, are The Girl on the Train and Into the Water, and they were both New York Times bestsellers. And The Girl on the Train was an international bestseller that was adapted into a film in 2016 starring Emily Blunt. Yes, I really liked it. I don't know. Did you ever see it? I didn't see it. No, you should. I feel like it's 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 really I think I thought the actor portrayal was really good. To be determined like, by everybody else. <laughs> it's on my list. So also, I thought this was really cool because um, not that it's super common, but I don't know that it's talked a lot about with well-known authors now, like when their career really takes off. But according to Wikipedia, Hawkins actually started writing fiction around 2009 under the name Amy Silver. And these novels were actually classified as romantic comedy fiction. So totally different genre. And then her real breakthrough came when she decided to focus on these like darker, more mysterious and often much more serious stories. So just kind of cool to, to hear about, I mean, she wrote under a completely different genre, but that's so typical to, you know, I know we were talking about this when we met with Anne to like when an author becomes known for a certain genre then everybody expects that and her breakthrough came with the mystery genre I'd be so curious how she made that transition because I feel like that is kind of a leap to go from rom-com to like I mean murder like there's some deep sinister stuff in this book and her other two 
that I'm like, how do you go from happy comedy, cutesy writing to like death, 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 death? <laughs> yeah, huge jump, very different. <laughs> So for this book, it is a third-person narrative that gives us the perspective, thoughts, and feelings of several different characters, which we'll get into in just a bit. Um, it's set in like a modern-day neighborhood in London, near London, you know, like not, not Piccadilly Circus or anything like that, but kind of near London. So... I have some fun facts about London for you because even though we've talked about England, I don't think we've actually given like fun facts on London specifically. No, so, I don't think so. All right. So I've got a few. I know it's a popular place. So I tried to pick some things that like really stood out. Um, so most of this is coming from Feeling You app. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I will link it, um, mm -hmm. which is a website and Travelers Universe, which is another website. So First of the first fact being that the smallest city in England or the United Kingdom is the city of London, which oh. like, oh, you didn't know that? Okay, yeah. That's because technically the actual city of London is just 1.2 square miles with a population of about 7,500 people. But when we talk about London, we're typically referring to actual greater London and that is obviously much larger and has millions of residents, but the actual city of London, capital C, is very, very small. Interesting. So there is, there's London and greater London. Basically, yes. Okay. There's the city of London and greater London. And it's called and, greater London, technically, but everyone I mean, just like sum it up as London. It's all London. Interesting. Did not know that. <laughs> Fun little fact. According to Traveler's Universe, London was founded in 43 AD by the Romans. Whoa. Which, like, I know there's a lot of history there. That's one of the fun things about visiting London. But, like, it's real old. It's really old. Really it's 43. Yeah. <laughs> 43. 43. <laughs> and when it was founded, it was called Londinium. And there is actually, <laughs> there is actually a letter that dates back to the second half of the first century that mentions the settlement. So, like, we have actual records of it being that old. Jeez, crazy! I love that kind of history because we don't have that in the U.S. We're way too new. Yeah, well, we're way too new in terms of records. That's for sure. Yeah, true. All right, so. That's like a top attraction. Everybody knows it. It's where every British monarch has been crowned since 1066, which like, I mean, I knew that it was really important. I've been to it, but like, I didn't know that literally every monarch had been crowned there for that long. And was it and, the most recent crowning this year? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. With uh, yeah. Charles, is that his name? Yeah, Charles. Yeah. And more than 3,000 notable people are also buried there and not just kings, which I didn't know that. And I didn't also I didn't realize it was that many people. Um, this they have other people like poets, scientists and other important people within the society that are also buried there. So not just monarchy. Cool. 
And since we're covering a mystery novel this time, I felt it was only fitting to mention that one of history's most notorious serial killers murdered several women women in London, and that was Jack the Ripper. Today, there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of really good podcasts about him, too, if you're ever interested in any, any of that. Um, like, I know Morbid did a really good job of kind of diving into all of that, so that's a good one. But no one actually knows for sure who he was, and no one was ever arrested for the brutal killings. That's what I thought. It's still kind of like a cold case, isn't it? Like, unsolved. Like, they know this ominous Jack the Ripper did it, but they never pinpointed who it was. Yeah, I mean, they've had suspects, um, but no one knows for sure who it was. And this is kind of morbid, but I know, like, today as a tourist, you can go to the spots where he killed people. There's like all sorts of tours and stuff that you can take. Um, I'm fascinated to like learn about it and listen to podcasts, but I don't know that I would go out of my way to take a tour to the spots that he killed people. That just, that's a little bit much for me. Yeah. I also feel like that's such a, like you could walk anywhere and somebody died. (laughs) So why there, you know? Yeah, I don't know. If I'm in London, I don't think that's the tour I'm going to do. But you know what? If that's what interests you, go for it. I will say this isn't quite the same. But if you have a chance to do like ghost tours and stuff when you go visit places, it is so worth it. We've done it a few times um, at a couple of different cities in the U.S. at least. And it's just so like a South Carolina. We did one in San Antonio, Texas. I think there's a third that I'm forgetting about, but it's so, like, I feel like that's just such a different, cool way to learn about history. So even though I'm not all in on the Jack the Ripper murder spots, I do think ghost tours or murder tours are definitely a a good way to view a city in a different light. Agreed. Agreed. I do think they are cool. And yeah, for, I guess, for certain sites, I'm like, yeah, I want to go. For whatever reason, that one, I guess, just doesn't, like, it. it's so disturbing, I guess, if you learn more about what happened, and so, but I don't know. You do to each you. Their own. Yeah, yeah, to each their own. Figure it out. <laughs> All right, so let's start talking about this messy murder and the mystery of these few people living in this quaint little London neighborhood. So we start out in this novel by meeting a range of characters and they are all somehow connected to the murder of a man named Daniel. Laura was possibly one of the last people to see him alive. They were together for a date slash hookup but things definitely went south and even turned physical before she left with some sort of, I don't know, like fight between them that involved hitting or shoving. So we know that it turned physical. And for Laura, it's not her first interaction with police either. And things don't look good from her, good for her from the start because she's got bloody clothes that they find when they visit her in her home and Daniel's watch, which she kind of claims that she took because she was just really mad about their fight that they had. So 
In the beginning, she ends up getting taken to the station almost right away for questioning about her night with Daniel, as well as an accident that happened, which has left her with a limp and several years ago um, involved a traumatic brain injury as well. Because of this, she frequently says too much, poor thing, like she just gives them lots of information and often responds kind of inappropriately to serious questions. Like she'll laugh when things are not funny and not just a like chuckle or a giggle. She'll like full on laugh for a period of time. So. And she knows it's wrong. Like you can see her inner dialogue of like, why are you laughing? Stop laughing. But it's like, she can't physically stop herself no she can't control it but you do and she's like why are you doing this why are you saying that oh you shouldn't have said that oh now they've really got you yeah um so that is kind of where things kick off but then we meet Miriam and Miriam was the person who found Daniel and she lives on a boat that was near his so they kind of live on these they have all these boat houses that people live in on the canal and Miriam is Definitely, she's like a resident there, whereas other people kind of come and go. So she knows all that's going on in this area. And she discovered he was murdered, stabbed multiple times, and provides the details of what she, quote, remembers leading up to the day that she found his body. And she even mentions how she recalls an older woman stopping by. But what she doesn't tell them is that she found a key at the scene that she took, and she knows who that key belongs to. But she very conveniently leaves out information that she wants to and shares and divulges what she does want to. So a little more calculated than Laura is, who just kind of word vomits. Yes. Carla and Theo Meyerson are a separated couple, but still in a relationship. So that's complicated. And they are told about Daniel's death. Daniel was Carla's nephew and her sister, Angela, so Daniel's mom, had actually died just a few weeks beforehand. Carla can barely focus when she's given this news about Daniel's death. And Theo tells police about a girl he saw near his house around the time of the death covered in blood. Finally, we meet Irene, who is an older woman who was neighbors with Angela and is visited regularly by Laura. Laura kind of helps her out with like groceries and technology and other things like that. But Laura hasn't shown up like she was expected to when Irene learns of Daniel's death. She's shocked by the news of a mother and a son dying within weeks of one another. We learn that Angela had actually struggled with drinking but Irene was always sure that there was more to the story. She had essentially fallen. It looked like this accident. Um, people kind of attributed it to likely her drinking problems and other things. But it's certainly suspicious that now her son has passed away within just a few weeks. So these are our characters and all of their stories just start to unfold and unravel from there. We learn a little bit more about Carla and Theo who had a little boy and tragically the little boy Ben died when he was in the care of Angela. So at one point they had asked Angela to just watch over him and a horrible, horrible accident happened and he was killed because of that. 
it is just the beginning of the end of so many connections for this family and everyone else that's involved. Carla and Theo, and Theo in particular, also have a very tense relationship with Miriam, and Theo confronts her at work to tell her to stay away from them. They know that Miriam was the person that found Daniel, and they're already kind of worried about what she's going to say or do. The history that they have actually involves Theo's publisher or the publisher's attorney who wrote to Miriam not long ago about accusations that she said Theo stole her story for his famous novel. He's a very famous author. Miriam thinks that he took the idea from her. So he has a novel out that's called The One Who Got Away. Miriam, we can clearly tell, resents Theo for this. I hope I don't say Leo because I'm like so much more likely to say Leo than I am Theo. So if I mess up, tell me. So far, so good. Okay. Miriam resents Theo for this and starts to plot at like how she can control this narrative while keeping hold of information and significant items that are definitely related to other people in the story. So little lies and secrets really start to come out, like how Carla was definitely much closer to Daniel than she originally said and told police, but she didn't want it to upset Theo, and how Theo has despised or had despised Angela after Ben died, and how Angela herself really struggled with raising Daniel. Like I said, she was an alcoholic. I would gather that she was probably deeply impacted by Ben's death as well, and many other things that are going to come to light. Meanwhile, Theo pays a visit to the crime scene to casually talk with a young officer and work to get out information about what's going on with the case and all of that. And then when he returns home, he has some emails from fans that are constantly asking about his book and where the ideas came from for his novel, The One Who Got Away, which we start to actually get snippets of as a reader. We know what the novel is about. So I will say just on that note specifically, like huge red flag, um, returning or going to a crime scene. Uh, yeah. Um, like killer 101. Right. Don't go to the crime scene. Especially, well, see, and that's where like at this point, I'm like, we've got Miriam who's collecting trinkets. That's yeah. a red flag to me. That's suspicious, whether that's related to the crime itself or someone that's been at the scene previously. And then we have Theo who's been back, I think not once, but like a time or two to kind of scope out like how much did the cops know? Do Who are they going to arrest? Is anybody in custody? Like almost suspiciously trying to see, okay, if they're thinking this person, then I'm, I'm in the clear, which like, we don't know if he did it, but to me, that's the thought process of like, how far are they? So I can calculate my next moves. The two of them are most calculating to me. Yes. Um, yes. And Miriam, I find very untrustworthy. And very yeah. off-putting. I love the oh. description of her. Have you gotten to that part yet? Where she's like the the troll or the hobbit or something. <laughs> like this poor woman is like not attractive, a very like busy body, super nosy, up in everybody's stuff. 
so nosy yeah especially I mean from the beginning when they're talking about how she kind of keeps tabs on everyone all of the votes and everything going on I mean it's not keeping tabs like it is being in everyone's business yes yeah and I think well and at the beginning too it was like oh he's been here for more than two weeks I better remind him you can't be here for that long blah blah blah. right and like then she's like oh the door is open let me peek in in. yeah hello um (laughs) taking stuff from a crime scene not good and honestly like that immediately turned the police's attention away too if you're the person that found the body and called it in like that could be some pre-planning on your part to try to be the one that saved the day even though you didn't save anything but you alerted them to it right so we get some more information on why exactly or how this like tense relationship between Miriam and Theo really developed because Miriam feels so betrayed by him. He was a person that she had actually trusted with her memoir. So she wrote a memoir, an entire manuscript about her personal story of being kidnapped in the early 80s with her friend Lorraine. And Lorraine was killed while Miriam ran away. So Miriam got away from this actual situation that happened. She wrote this up and she shared this information with Theo. And as we know from reading his novel, The One Who Got Away, that sounds very similar to the story that he is writing or wrote. And I think, I mean, so the reason that that all came about and maybe you're getting to it too is like, obviously he's in a terrible slump after the death of his only child. And so Miriam kind of just landed in his lap, if you will, with this novel, because she was looking to him for advice or, you know, hey, how can I like get my name out there? You're already famous. We're in the same town. Maybe we can work together or something. And he just spun it as his own. And I think he spun it as like a work of fiction, obviously, but Mm -hmm. it was her memoir based on very real horrific tragedies that happened in her and her betrayal feels so intense too because she admired him and came to him as a friend and he just totally spun that and flipped that on her and then is almost made her out to seem like the crazy person who can't let something go and has no relation to it whatsoever So Laura finally goes to visit Irene and to help her again with like groceries and anything else that she may need. And one day Carla is also next door. So um, because Irene and Angela live together, Carla being Angela's sister, Carla has access to that. So Carla is there as well. And Laura just can't help herself when Carla leaves the door open and a tote bag is just sitting there, making it way too easy for her to grab. So she does. So I'm envisioning this and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm seeing like two basically like New York-esque brownstones because they're sharing a wall, right? Right. Yeah. But but it's not an apartment. They each have their own house. Yeah. They're like townhomes. Yes. Okay. I think that's how I envision it, but they're like townhomes. So you have your own like front door and, you know, porch-ish area. Yes. But, But yeah, they're not apartments. Right. And they share an inside wall. Yes. Okay. Okay. So Carla is at Angela's house kind of frequently. 
um, just kind of wandering the house, reliving memories of her sister and Daniel, and also conversations that they had about Ben's death. Theo tries to look for Carla at Angela's house one day, and that's when Irene notices him there. So like anytime someone is knocking or at Angela's front door, or even in Angela's house, Irene is like, peeking out to see who it is and what's going on. And so she notices him and she remembers him actually, and says that she saw him with Angela just before she died, him and his dog. Theo kind of tries to deny this and brush her off. I mean, he's like, you're just this old woman. You don't even know what you're talking about. But we know from his thoughts, he's actually pretty anxious about this meeting with Irene and more anxious about Carla actually finding out that he had been with Angela. And that's exactly what happens when Irene tells Carla that she saw Theo arguing with Angela before she died and that Angela was crying. Theo starts to recall the last time he saw Angela or the last couple of times and the drawing of Carla that Daniel had done. So it was of like Carla lying in bed without clothes on or anything that Daniel drew. Theo had wanted to confront Daniel about it, but Angela insisted that it wasn't his fault. But then one day she was like, but there's more I have to tell you about this. And it just kind of trailed off. But we know that Theo was definitely having conversations with Angela about Daniel and Carla. And see, like, that's where this book, I'm like, holy shit, this is another level. Because this is, like, gross, incestual, an aunt and a nephew getting together. Like, and, and but I don't, I mean, I feel like we don't know if Carla, like, necessarily fed into that. Or if it was just Daniel's delusion. But either way, he saw his aunt sleeping naked in bed and drew her. Like, that's fucking creepy. Um, it is. Yeah, it's, we can talk more about it, but I don't know that we were ever given definitive proof of a relationship or anything like that between Carla and Daniel, but it's definitely like insinuated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, there are a couple of times that I was like, oh yeah, this is like an incest situation. This is incest. <laughs> <laughs> Until this point, like, we don't know that for sure. Like, up to this point, it really kind of looks like Daniel's just being a huge creeper on his aunt. Like, definitely really inappropriate. And I can see where Theo would be really protective and want to confront him about that. Right. Because, Um, and I think that Theo almost has a little bit of an upper hand because, A, he's the husband, but B, he's also not related to this family. So he's like, yo, outside looking in, this is not good. Like, this is disgusting. This needs to stop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, I question Carla a lot, but we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, so Miriam finds Laura outside of her old place of employment one day. Laura had been fired because of her situation with the police. Yeah, yeah. And she, like, tries to befriend her, again, very calculating, you know, there's definitely some ulterior motives to this friendship that she's trying to show her. And through this, we find out more about Laura's accident, how she was actually hit by a car that was being driven by her mom's boyfriend or the person she was having an affair with. And her mom, like, tried to cover for him. So 
Laura literally almost died. Don't know how she's alive. Her mom's boyfriend did it and had actually stopped and was trying to help. And her mom like told him to go and leave. And she tried to cover for him and all of that. And now her mom's married to the guy. So Laura doesn't have a great relationship with her parents at all. They don't treat her super well. It's just overall really, really bad situation. And like I said, Miriam's intentions aren't totally pure. She claims she's trying to protect Laura from the Daniel investigation. And she says that she thinks his aunt had something to do with it. But this is all because she's like trying to redirect attention to Carla, even though she doesn't think Carla did it. She just wants to get back at Theo and Carla. Mm -hmm. Laura kind of explodes at all of this and they have like this big blow up. But eventually she goes to Miriam's boat to try to apologize because like we said, she'll have these reactions to something but her inner dialogue and even her thoughts afterwards are like that was inappropriate I shouldn't have behaved that way so she goes back to the boat to try to apologize and Miriam like she was a little bit offended because Miriam was trying to be like hey we're the same we're just like each other and Laura's like what the fuck no we're not (laughs) who are you (laughs) and she was also a little bit like I'm on your side. I'm trying to help you. And she's like, there's nothing to help. I didn't kill him. Like, what right. are you saying? I think, yeah, Laura's very blunt. Like, she's always claimed her innocence because she is innocent. Like, she's already blurted out what happened, why she was on Daniel's boat to begin with. And so the fact that she's also just very bluntly like, we're not the same. I am not a suspect. This is not my problem. I did not do this. I think that was also very off-putting to Miriam, who's like, but I'm trying to help you. Yeah, it, either way, didn't it, it doesn't, doesn't go well. And it gets worse <laughs> because when she tries to apologize, so then yeah, Miriam tries to be like, this is why I'm like you. Here's why I can tell you I'm different. And she tells her the story about how she was kidnapped and even hands her the manuscript that she wrote. But when Miriam walks away, Laura being Laura, starts to snoop around and finds her key that Miriam took from the crime scene. And they end up arguing and result in another sort of like physical altercation before Laura ends up running out, which, yeah, like, okay, Laura probably shouldn't have snooped, but I do agree with her in this instance, because if she found her key, I would be like, why do you have this? Like, you've kept this this whole time you found this at the crime scene and you didn't think to like give this to me or hand what are you doing or even like I mean I feel like if I were Laura it's like okay you either you didn't turn it into the police and you didn't give it back to me so what are you trying to get at yeah it's not good Carla and Theo go to Ben's gravesite. So their son, who I believe would have been turning 18. And Carla tells Theo Theo how she lost his St. Christopher, which is she's kind of been looking for it. Like she knows it's lost. And while they're sitting there, Theo admits to her that he saw Angela, which like she already knows. And he tells her that they had actually spoken before she died because He'd given Daniel some money and Daniel wanted more. So just a little lie about what they were really discussing prior to Angela's death, which also makes me think 
I mean, like, was she drinking because she was so upset about this news about her sister and Daniel and these conversations? I mean, like, well, and what I also can't remember clearly, and maybe you can remind me is, was she already an alcoholic or did she turn into one after Ben's death? I thought she already was one. Okay. But it maybe um, it just got worse and like, yeah. okay. Because uh, we know like she had a strange relationship with Daniel anyway. Like she just found him to be like a really unruly child that she didn't know how to cope with, which like her getting pregnant with Daniel also like broke my heart because she had an affair with a college professor and then he like left and was like nope not my problem and she was a student and so she's like well fuck what am I supposed to do yeah um like at first I was very much I I felt really bad for her but then it was like she it it sort of seemed at first like she just couldn't handle him and and I didn't really know how much of that was actually Daniel at that point or if like he's just a boy and she Mm -hmm couldn't give him the attention that he needed as a child. I mean, girl or a boy, like couldn't give him the attention that he needed, maybe didn't want to. He's clearly struggling with like substance abuse. But then the more we learned about Daniel, I'm like, uh, maybe there was something to that. And right. it, it is sad just like how much grief she was carrying and how she felt like such a a bad parent I mean leading up to her own death but it clearly wasn't one-sided because I think we hear from Irene like she would hear them yelling at each other like it wasn't just like Angela throwing him in his room you know locking him away it was like he's also very irate also argumentative with her and like and I think that she Irene had heard maybe things being thrown around or like people running around over there because again, they're sharing a wall and just clearly the relationship was not great. Period. No, not at all. Lots, lots of um, messy family dynamics. Um, And I don't know, just like crazy to me, all of the secrets and really all of the elements, like each person here has really someone they could take it out on Mm -hmm. or, could betray so yeah which I think adds to the suspense because it's like everyone kind of has a motive oh they just who pulled who pulled the trigger if you will but it was a knife so (laughs) who pulled out the knife yes (laughs) so after her little incident with Laura Miriam is upset when she discovers that Laura took an earring that had belonged to Lorraine the friend that passed away And she recalls the funeral of her friend and how the killer, who was named Jeremy, was never arrested, but actually presumed dead when they found his car near a cliff. They're always like, oh, he died. Miriam herself, though, you can just tell, as odd as she may be, like has suffered from horrible survivor's guilt this entire time. But never had anyone tell her, like, things could have been different until Theo's novel, because Theo actually wrote out like an alternative in his novel for what could have happened. And I think that that would be very, very hard to process. Like it was one thing for him, for him to take the story, but then to actually manipulate it Mm -hmm. and like fictionalizing it in this instance did not do anyone any good. Right. Because especially I'm, 
if I remember correctly, it's almost a positive outcome, if you will, in the ending. Kind of. Kind of. And the reality of it is that it's not like he was never found. There's never been any closure. And that's something that she's had to live with every single day. Yeah. And he basically turned it where like she killed him in yes. the story. That yes. didn't happen. I mean, that's a positive outcome, right? You killed right. the killer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and Miriam struggled with that, which anyone would in that instance. Uh, if you're the person that got away or anything like that, like you would struggle with that. So definitely some resentment there. Laura finds comfort after this whole situation with Irene and is very honest about what happened with Daniel, how she stole Carla's tote bag and has even taken money from Irene. And Irene is like, yeah, I might be old, but I'm not dumb. <laughs> she also shares Miriam's manuscript with Irene and explains their whole incident. Irene like, is just so sweet and takes her in and offers for her to stay at her place and when she starts to read the manuscript, it seems so familiar. And she realizes that there are definite similarities between that story and the novel, The One Who Got Away, which she has a copy of that she actually got from Angela's place. Carla like brought over a bunch of Angela's books at one point, and this is one of them. And just inside is a drawing of Carla with a note, and it's obvious that it is Daniel's work. So that's the other thing is like, not only did Daniel draw this creepy picture, but he was sort of threatening Leo, Theo. I, there, I almost said there you, yep. <laughs> there you go. It's <laughs> to happen. Turns out Carla has her own memory of this picture that Daniel drew. And when Daniel had actually asked her at that point to live with her for a period of time. And... The day he told her about the boat that he was staying on, he brushed his lips with her. Nyeh. Not good. No. No. No, no, no. So I don't know. It's like Carla never puts a stop to it. Like when she saw Daniel drawing the picture, she didn't say like, this is so inappropriate. You can't do this. And when Daniel asked to live with her, she doesn't say like, no, that's not acceptable. She's like, oh, Theo might not like that. Like, right. mm, it's not, it's not great. And then she goes to visit him one day on the boat, but he wasn't around. And so she started to help herself to kind of one of his like notebooks or novels, which was essentially an entire graphic novel that he created. And she ends up taking it with her. See, this is where I have a hard time with Carla. Cause like you said, like she's the aunt, she's, not putting like a very clear boundary of like this is a interfamilial relationship that we absolutely cannot should not have but I also wonder if part of it and I'm not trying to like romanticize this in any way but like she lost a son and so I'm wondering if in some sick way her not shutting Daniel down in the appropriate way is her trying to be like motherly and nurturing to like regain the son in a sense I don't may I'm, I'm kind of drawing at straws I'm, no. I'm trying to justify something that's unjustifiable <laughs> I don't think you are though like so sort of up into up to this point I 
thought that she was trying to take on that role for him for the most part. Like she felt really guilty about Angela's treatment of him and like when Angela sent him off and she, like Daniel always kind of went to her as more of the mother figure because Mm -hmm. he couldn't go to Angela for that. So that's what I thought it was at first. I was like, oh, she kind of like is taking him on as she lost her son. She kind of looks at Daniel as a son. And then I was like, you've crossed the line and this is this is no longer a mother-son seeming relationship yes well and I think too like it's been described that like Daniel maybe down on his luck is not an ugly guy and I think Carla is not unattractive herself and she's fairly well off so she's clearly maintaining herself in some way so these are two like not very ugly people Again, this is no point to prove anything, but I just feel like it it kind of, I don't know, like, I feel like the author is trying to make you see this, like, draw toward each other, even though it's so incredibly wrong. It's so wrong. I I felt like the author was trying to make it seem like, did it happen? Did it not happen? Mm -hmm. We don't really know. But either way, it's up to the interpretation, but it's like, either way, it's a gray area that's unacceptable. Yes. Like that's and not an area that you can, drama. Right. And that's not an area that like you can be like, oh, they blurred a line. Like right. you, don't <laughs> right. get to, you don't get to blur that line. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That's yeah. We don't cross that line. Not no, period. No, no. That's <laughs> this is not a gray area. No. <laughs> so Laura, sadly, but not unexpectedly, is taken in and accused of Daniel's murder. Yeah. Um, Not only is a bit of Daniel's blood on her clothes, but they found the murder weapon in her place, a knife. Like we said, no one pulled the trigger, but they did pull out a knife. And things do not look good. She like tries to be like, but Miriam had my key. Maybe someone planted this. Like, I swear I didn't do it. But I mean, they found the murder weapon in her apartment she tries to explain Daniel's blood being on her clothes, which it also, like, it's not a lot of his blood. It is not enough blood for no. a stabbing, but it's, yeah. either way, like, the police have enough evidence, so they claim to. This is what's confusing to me, too. So, like, she's clearly admitted, like, poor Laura already, like, very down on her luck, just not, I don't know, and At first, I was kind of annoyed with Laura because she always had this, it's not my fault statement, but like, I genuinely believe it's not her fault. Like her mind and her, her, she is not connecting. And, and so now I do genuinely believe it's not her fault, but what I'm not so closely able to connect is Theo's statement saying that she was covered in blood. Whereas like, clearly she has blood on her from the altercation that she's already admitted to of like, yes, they got physical, maybe some scratches, maybe some punches. It comes out. I think that she actually bit him. So that makes sense with that amount of blood. But for Theo to say, I saw a woman covered in blood, that doesn't add up to me. I felt like Theo was always trying to point the finger somewhere else Mm, to draw their attention. And I think it sounds a lot more I don't know, like the police are going to be a lot more interested if you're like, oh, I saw her and she was covered in blood. And like, unless you were like, yeah, I saw her and she looked like she had like a few scratches on her. Kind of weird. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she looked like she got beat up. <laughs> 
I, yeah, she annoyed me like to a point and then I just felt so sorry for yeah. her. And this also, I mean, this definitely feels kind of like a classic, classic situation where like things don't look good, but also the police feel some sort of pressure to like, they're like, eh, we like, there's enough things here and we really have to make a call on this. Yeah. Um, like I even feel like some of the detectives feel sorry for her when they're trying to talk to her. And so it's not a good male detective that shoots the egg that she kept calling him (laughs) egg because he was bald. He definitely was like very sympathetic. Like, oh man, I don't want to be doing this, but it's all here. Like you have the murder weapon. I mean, we've got the body, we've got the weapon. It's all signs are pointing to you. But yeah. he didn't want to. <laughs> and motive. Yes. Yes. It's it's not good. So we then finally find out that Carla read Daniel's notebook that she took. And which was up until this point, she was like, oh, it's private. Like, I don't read that stuff. But then, yeah, whatever. She took it. And she obviously took it to read it. And this story is actually the story of the day that Ben died. It depicts Daniel leading the little boy onto the balcony and then pushing a truck toward the railing, which Ben chased after and then fell over and off of this balcony and that killed him. And the final drawing shows Daniel by himself smiling on the balcony. Absolutely horrific. And this is like Verity level. Like, I cannot believe this shit. I did not expect this. No. Um, Because up to this point, I thought Daniel was just as affected by, because it's his little cousin. Like, I thought, you know, when they were children, they had a good relationship. He was always so excited to see his cousin. So I thought that Ben or that Daniel was just as negatively affected by Ben's death. But then this notebook no way. Nope. 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 Not at all. Irene goes to visit Theo when she's actually going there to try to share like her findings and things with Carla, who isn't around anywhere. Carla's like off on her own. She found one of Daniel's notebooks, aka the notebook, and eventually Theo made a grab for it to see it himself. And when he saw what was in there, he threw it in the fire. Also, 100% thought Theo was going to attack Irene. I was like, Irene's not getting out of this alive. I was like, this woman is about to die. (laughs) Because you, I mean, it's described like you can see the rage in Theo. And then I'm thinking back like, oh my gosh, he was probably the one that then pushed Angela down the stairs. Like he just had this flash of rage and it overtook him. But then he like withdraws and is like, let me just let me throw this in the fire. Let me get you like a drink. <laughs> let me, let's all just calm down a second here. <laughs> I thought he was going to like poison her. Yes. He and she was like, I'm not feeling so well. And I was like, oh my gosh, he poisoned her. <laughs> yeah. Um, Paula Hawkins does a really great job of making you as a reader point the finger in like a million different directions to be like, no, he did it. No, she did. It. No, he, no, no, no. hundred percent. I even write that in my my final thoughts. <laughs> I didn't write it, but well, I think it for sure. 
When Theo is brought back into the police station, they question him about the knife because as police, they actually did their due diligence. So that's good. (laughs) Um, And the knife actually belonged to him. And he begins to confess his last conversation with Angela and how she told him that Daniel and Carla were having a relationship. And then he confesses to killing Daniel. Which is so crazy. So then, okay, so again, bringing it back to the Daniel Carla thing. So is Angela, does Angela know that? Or did she make that assumption based off of the notebooks and the drawings too? I took it as like she made the assumption, I mean, you could say it either way. She made the assumption or she knows it based off of her findings and that she shared that information and shared all of the drawings and things with Theo at that point. Oh my gosh. And then for, for to have like a clean confession to a murder, that just seems too easy. (laughs) But, oh, I don't want to, we're like almost to the end. I don't want to give away my thoughts on it. But like, to me, okay, well, I think Theo like always sort of knew what was going on and was sort of playing his cards to try to keep things going in a certain direction to protect the people that he loves. Okay. Okay. And I can elaborate on that in just a second. Yes, please. (laughs) Because even though Theo has confessed weeks ago, and like I said, we're spoiling things. So like, here's the spoiler. (laughs) Weeks ago, Carla had gone to Daniel's boat to confront him and just wanted him to deny it. But that never happened. He never got the chance to. He barely even got a sentence out before she stabbed him. Carla killed Daniel. So here's my thing. Okay, now I can say it. I think Theo knew that. And the whole time, what, or I think Theo had a hunch that Carla had done it. And then when he knew about like the notebook and everything, I think he threw it in the fire to like try to protect her. I think mm-hmm. everything he's done has been to try to protect her on, even though maybe he didn't know it, he was like, eh, it's possible I'm going to try to make sure that this goes in a different direction. Let me like maybe say, oh, I saw a random like girl covered in blood. It was probably her. Like, I think he's always known and tried to get them to see that it was someone else. And even though he didn't do it, he's like, I will protect Carla. And so he confesses to killing that's insane to me that you would be willing to throw your own life in jail in order to protect somebody. Not saying like I would not like <laughs> I would absolutely if it was you, Bree, sure, we would work together, teamwork here. But you're not very well by yourself. <laughs> I would not individually just be like, it was me. I did it. I would not throw myself under the bus for someone. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just feel like you're wasting your life doing that. And I get, maybe he's saying like, my life is not worth living without Carla. I'd rather be in jail, but I just, I can't imagine that. Uh, So his love for her is so deep. Like that's pretty apparent in the story, but to me, I'm like, all right, you know, she had 
whether or not it was an affair or like a full on sexual relationship, she had some sort of weird thing going on with Daniel and you're still gonna defend her, protect her. Yes. But that is, so that's my interpretation though, is that like this, everything that he was doing was in some way trying to protect Carla or even when he didn't know for sure that it was her, he was like, "Mm, just in case, let me make sure that this Mm -hmm. isn't pointing towards us. Right. Damn. I don't know. Is that admirable or is that just stupid? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But thankfully, because of this, Laura is set to be released. But not before she's attacked by another person while still in the police station. I'm not going to lie. I didn't really understand this part. Um, I didn't really get what it, like, contributed to the story, one. And two, like, logistically, who is... When another confession comes in and they know it's not Laura, they're they're like, oh, yeah, your fingerprints weren't on the knife, yada, yada. It's not you. You're going to be released. You get released. You don't get sent back in with the other people that are being held. Right. Or, like, you should be put in a different area. Right. Because, yeah, like, like, okay, the drunk tank, for example. You're not, you're going to be put in the drunk tank, not in the back with the freaking murderers. Like, that's where she should have been moved to. Or, like, some sort of waiting area or, like, reception area where she could still be watched. Because I know, like, they said, hey, we're just going to have to keep you here while we're processing paperwork. Which, like, sure, that makes sense. That shit takes forever. I'm sure they had to get notaries, etc. But, like, remove the person who is free. Or keep them in a room if you're like, hey, we have a lot of paperwork to process. Why don't you keep them in a room where you interview the people? And Right, yes, yes. You don't send them back with but also I just didn't understand what this added to the story I thought it was so random even with how the rest of the story plays out I was just kind of okay um was it another do you think like maybe another just jab at like Laura's so down on her luck like all of this negative it's not my fault stuff has happened to her maybe you know, this is just another nail in the coffin of that kind of thing. Maybe, maybe another another thing and kind of to make you question, like, is she going to make it out alive? Did she, right. has she gone through all of this and now, now she's not even going to live to see another day? That's, um, I feel like that's, that's a good I, motivator, if you will, to like okay. get to the end is seeing like, really? So the person that has been innocent all along, proclaimed her innocence, wrongfully convicted, she's free, and now she's not even going to get to see freedom? Like, yeah, that, that could be a good okay. Okay. A good way to try to keep you reading to the very end. <laughs> well, Irene has also solved the case, and without divulging her intentions, she talks to Carla and gets Carla to confess to killing Daniel all while recording the entire exchange, thanks to Laura's little teachings about technology. She knows This is another moment that I thought Irene was gonna die, for sure. Carla was kind of scary in this scene. Um, Especially because she was like, come upstairs, Irene, I have to show you something. And I'm like, don't go upstairs, Irene. (laughs) You better push you, Irene. Yeah, it it was very scary. So, but Irene was super smart and 
when Laura gets out of the hospital, she like takes Laura in and they live together and have this cute little relationship. I love that. I thought that was so beautiful. I do too, especially because, I mean, like you already said, like both of her parents are just so dysfunctional and like wrapped up in clearly really not great relationships themselves that I just feel like Laura needs someone stable who cares about her, who shows interest in her, who wants the best for her. So I'm, I'm so glad that the two of them ended up together. I know we got a little happy ending. It was very, very sweet for them. And once Theo is released, he goes to Miriam to ask her to stop sending harassing letters and emails to him. But turns out they're not from her. They are from Jeremy, the man who kidnapped her and killed her friend and never died. And Theo is going to help her get to him. Another twist. Another freaking twist. Uh, no. <laughs> And our story ends in prison, where Carla gets access to an article about another man found dead in the canal. Not related. It was the body of Jeremy O'Brien, the man wanted in connection with a murder in the 80s and who had lived under an alias all this time. Because we're in, like, present day, basically. Yeah. Carla's story may turn into an article or a book itself as she meets with a criminologist to discuss the case, but says she won't really go into the details about why. We only get her thoughts on it when she's asked if she has any regrets for what she did. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so the one thing, and, and I might be misremembering, so it was... The houseboat that Daniel was living on, wasn't that rented from, like, a friend? Yeah. Was that friend's last name O'Brien? Oh, or am shoot. I trying to make a connection? I because don't remember I, that. I, for some reason, I felt in my gut that that was some, like, circular moment of, like, the person's dad that the boat was rented from was, turns out to be, like, that killer. But I, I might be grasping, I might be misremembering that. Um, if you made that connection, that's really impressive, but I, I don't remember that. Because I do feel like at one point they describe like how Daniel came into possession of the boat, but I, maybe I'm wrong. I should reread that part. <laughs> yeah, I want to go back and look at that because that would be really interesting. Yes. And like, again, like another full circle moment, killer to killer. Well, killy, I guess. Murder to murdery. <laughs> Um, yeah, which Laura also had sort of her own full circle moment, too, when she started living with Irene and is like, this kind of all started with me hooking up with Daniel. And now I sleep next to the room that he slept in. Yeah, or yeah strange, strange little moment there. So that is A Slow Fire Burning by Paul Hawkins. Yes, I think. I think the title, what did, what did you think of the title? Do you feel, cause I, you know, sometimes books will say like the, the title somewhere in the book. And I think she does do that. But do you feel like this was a slow fire burning? Um, so I've thought about this. Not really. I don't find the title itself actually super fitting other than, and this is kind of in my review. 
uh, with the word slow, like I felt the first 100 pages were kind of slow. Oh, um, okay. So like, and I'll, I'll tell you more on that in just a second. Like that was really my only thing was all of the character development at the beginning. Not that it wasn't important, but I was like, what is going on? Like, right. <laughs> was like how are all these people connected? What the like I felt like I was like constantly like flipping to be like okay this person this okay yes I I agree I think sometimes when authors like I get the intention but when they just throw like name 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 at you and you're like what who where when (laughs) yeah no I I agree I feel like on that title well so I feel like in my opinion the only person that I could see that had a slow fire burning, if you want to use that term literally, would have been Miriam. Because I feel like she is like calculating and vengeful enough that like if she would have known that Jeremy was alive this whole time, like I could see her working on a plan, like the slow revenge process of like, you know, I could see her like stalking him, taking the careful calculations to like hide things, taking trinkets from him to like prove that she knows where he is so I I feel like it could be fitting for like that one specific character if we were to build a story around her but I don't know if it's fitting for the whole book because I do feel like everything kind of happened in quick succession really It, it did if you look at it specifically through with Carla murdering Daniel mm-hmm. um I agree I could see that fitting with Miriam I could even see it fitting with Laura um mm-hmm. which would be a, a total I mean diverging completely from what her story was in this but I could see a slow fire burning with the accident that she had and just her parents treatment of her all of the years and if that built up more of like a grudge within her mm-hmm. that then turned into like calculations down the road um those to me would be more like slow fire burning like you said I think Miriam's a really good example but for Carla specifically I was like yeah unless you count like I don't know maybe the the 18 years between her son's death and then Daniel's death but to me like that didn't even come about until the quick succession moments where like she finds a notebook and it's like, well, you now you're dead. Like that's not even a slow fire burning. It'd be one thing if she had been like finding things out over the course of the 18 years. So I guess to me, a slow fire burning is a very slow calculated plot for revenge. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't see it fitting based on what the actual story, the main story was in terms of solving Daniel's murder. Yes. Okay. 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 I'm glad we had that discussion. (laughs) Well, why don't you share your final thoughts and reviews on Novel? Okay. It sounds good. Um, So I start off my review by saying this book is way more up my alley. I think I've probably shared it on every episode we've done, but murder, mystery, thriller, this type of genre is where I thrive. (laughs) And so I definitely... Really enjoyed reading this. Um, I love a good mystery that builds up on suspense and like really does kind of leave you guessing until the end. Like even Theo's false confession kind of throws you off. Even Laura being, you know, thrown into the hospital after that accident kind of throws you off with what happened. So I feel like until we really heard from 
the murderer, you're kind of like, I don't, I don't know. It could be anybody. Cause as we said, everyone really had motive. Um, and I think, you know, if I would have really given it some thought, I probably could have figured it out earlier on, but I just let the story take me there, which is kind of nice. Um, there were also so many layers of like shock factor, like Miriam's friend being raped and brutally murdered, um, Laura's whole accident, her mom running off with the boyfriend afterward, you know, uh, the incestual relationship happening between Daniel and Carla, like there's like three huge subcategories of this novel that you're like, what the heck is going on? Um, and it just, like I said, it just felt good to like let the book take me there rather than piece it together myself. Um, what I found most compelling about the novel though were the character descriptions. These, other than like Carla and Theo who are fairly well off, these aren't just like beautiful glamorous people. You know, this isn't a simple favor where it's freaking Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. These are fat people, <laughs> these are people with physical disabilities. These are people with clearly mental disabilities. Like these are not just your run of the mill. Like they're all very generic, but like specifically battered and they vary in wealth and social status. And I mean, we're talking about people that don't shower, that can't afford hot water. Like it's just a very different character depiction than I think we've been used to with a lot of the glamour of like rom-com and the cutesiness of those types of books or even when we read um, Beautiful World, Where Are You? Like these are very put together people. Whereas this book is like, everybody's kind of a mess. And I really, really liked that. Um, I think Paula Hawkins is really good at this type of portrayal in general, because she also, I thought did this with the girl on the train, especially with her like being an alcoholic, you know, she, these people just aren't always in their right mind. So I feel like this has kind of been right in her alley. Um, I thought this was an excellent choice of a read because again, I just love this type of stuff. And I'm proud to say that I've actually read all three of her novels. So go me. <laughs> what would you give it in stars? I would say four, four stars, a good solid four stars. Cause I mean, I feel like, yeah, it, I agree. It was a little bit slow with the introduction of every character, like you mentioned, but I do feel like once we got there, it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is really going. This is everybody's stories meshing together. So yes, four, four stars for me. I think that's fitting. Okay, I started by saying, and this was actually my very first thoughts, like when I read what the book was about, set in England with a murder, secrets, betrayals, yes, please. However, slow in quotes is how this definitely felt for about the first 100 pages so you just have to kind of get there like just keep going I felt like I was spending so much time trying to understand these characters and their connections that at first I wondered when it was going to pick up but it did so like that's important and that's a good thing and when that happened with each layer that was unfolding, every betrayal and all the secrets coming to the surface, I was definitely captivated by the stories. And I was, I would say like, I was trying hard to solve it to be like, oh my gosh, this person could have done it. Well, they definitely had reason to do it too. But I do like how the story just kind of lets you get there, mm -hmm. but it's very easy to point fingers at everyone, which I like. I will say looking at the narrative, like as a whole, I actually find it odd to say and would say that 
The parts that I enjoyed the most was actually the story within the story, talking about Miriam specifically. Mm-hmm. And funny how we were talking about it, but I would have enjoyed an entire novel that actually just focused on Theo stealing Miriam's story juxtaposed to the real one like Hawkins did here. Oh, like yeah. I kind of almost wish that that was a novel in itself. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a crime in itself, so might as right. well be a novel. <laughs> yeah. I, like that, those pieces alone have so many layers and complexities that I kind of felt like I was like, I want more of that specifically. Mm. I want, I want that to be it. Like I'm like Daniel who let's talk <laughs> about, let's talk about this. Um, So for me, like that component sort of stole the fire from the other part of the mystery. But that's just my opinion that I was like, man, I really want to know more about this like crazy kidnapping and how he's still alive. And now Miriam's going to go kill him. And like she wrote a manuscript about it and this dude stole it. I'm like, that's a book. Yeah. So Overall, though, like, I really enjoyed the complexities of the novel. I do, like, a good murder mystery as well. Maybe not as much as you do, but I do enjoy them. And I just kind of wish the pacing had been there from the get-go. But if you do want to read this, I promise it happens and that you're not going to be disappointed by everything that unfolds. You just kind of kind of get there. And it then it helps to know how everyone's related and what's going on. But uh, just takes a moment to get there. Okay, so what's your star rating then? Um, I'd probably get a three, three and a half. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah, I would give it a a three and a half, like maybe lean four, but I would say a three and a half mainly because I really do wish that it was like, I think the title would have been more fitting. I'm like, this should have been about Miriam. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's my take on it. I'm glad that we read it. It's kind of been on my TBR for a long time. So I'm glad that we finally got her in. Yes, me too. Well, if you do enjoy or did enjoy A Slow Fire Burning, like a good murder mystery, then you should definitely read her other novels. So I mentioned them at the beginning of the episode, but those are The Girl on the Train, which I think almost anyone knows about because of the movie. And then the other one is Into the Water. So great uh, definitely heading into spooky season. Paula Hawkins is definitely an author that you might want to pick up for the fall weather. And and your hot toddy, too. And your hot toddy, yeah. I mean, I think I haven't read the other two, but I would think that that probably pairs well with both of them. Oh, yeah. Well, because she's so, she, you know, as any author does who sticks to a certain genre, she also sticks to a very specific area of depiction. So these are all like you know, European, England based. So they all kind of have that dark, moody undertone just from the weather itself that we see over there. (laughs) Yes. Awesome. Okay. Well, our next book, do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I haven't ordered it yet, but I will. Um, So we'll be reading Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Gramus. Gramus? Nailed it. (laughs) I don't know. By Bonnie. <laughs> Just on Bonnie. <laughs> and I'm, if I'm correct, I'm led to believe this is kind of a rom-com-esque. No. Nope. Is it? I don't know. Wait, I 
heard different. I will say, I know that this has been like everywhere on social media and everyone's talking oh, about yeah. it. And, I and know like, the cover. Yeah. And adaptation is coming. I can't remember if it's going to be a series or a film, but like in terms of genre, I don't know that it is. Okay. Hold on. It's okay. It's historical fiction. It's humorous fiction. It's being descriptive as, so it's funny, but it may not be romantic. <laughs> okay. So that. Okay. According to Amazon, it's an engaging and thought-provoking read that manages to strike a delicate balance between internal struggles and external obstacles. I Okay. So what I'm gathering, it may not be like total satirical kind of thing, but I feel like it's going to be similar to like A Man Called Ove, where it's like real world scenarios, but you kind of like can't help but laugh at the character responses in a way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Good comparison. Good comparison. So that has been a hot novel this year. And so we decided that we need to give it a shot. Yeah, especially because clearly I had no idea what it was about. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's how I am with a few of our books. They've been books that I know like very little about, but I think that that's kind of fun to go in and try something new and explore new authors and different genres and just see where the journey takes us. Amen. Heard that. Love it. That's what we're going to do. And we'll be back next time with either that novel or a different episode with one of our other fun episodes in between. So, <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Narratives and Nightcaps is a production of the Craft Co. LLC. Music for this podcast was created by Remington Haynes. Connect with us on our website, narrativesandnightcaps.com, or follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Cheers!